You're listening to All Over the Place, the official podcast of Media Pub Live, with your hosts, Eric Provoznik, Jim Culver, Marty Zamora, and Christine Leninger. Hey there, this is Steve Hackett. You're on the All Over the Place podcast where the fun sounds never ends. Hello and welcome back to All Over the Place, the official podcast of Media Pub Live. I'm your host, Eric Provoznik, and with, as always, Jim Culver. How are you, Jim? I'm excellent. How about yourself, sir? I'm excited. This is a, it's going to be a, it's a great night already. It's going to be even greater. Also here, Christine. Hello, hello. How are you? I'm doing just fine. <laughs> Happy to be here. Happy to be hey. breathing. <laughs> and Mar- Marty's unfortunately not going to be able to join us tonight. But we had we still have an amazing show. And with us tonight, acclaimed documentary filmmaker and director, John Scheinfeld, and his latest project we're going to be talking about is What the Hell Happened to Blood, Sweat, and Tears. John Scheinfeld, welcome to All Over the Place. Uh, nice of you to have me. Happy to be here. Well, be, uh, before I get all slobbery and, and Chris Farley ask, I just want to say thank you so much for this documentary. I mean, I'm a bit of big blood sweat. I'm vintage 1970, folks. The year this, this movie uh, centers around uh, BS&T. So big blood, sweat, and tears fan. When I saw this trailer last year, I've been excited and seeing the movie, it just it lives up to every expectation and then some. And I don't even want to call it a documentary, just the subject matter, which we'll get into shortly. It's it's an espionage thriller. So, I mean, how, how did you uh, come across this movie and then making it? Well, uh, uh, like you, I grew up listening to Blood, Sweat and Tears and and really loved the band. Um, but then went off and did other things in life. And I made a film in 2016 called Chasing Crane, which is about the jazz legend, uh, John Coltrane. And Bobby Columbi, who was the co-founder of Blood, Sweat and Tears and uh, the drummer and the band leader uh, had seen it and uh, introduced himself to me and we talked a little bit. And then I didn't see him for, for some period of time. And then literally about two months before COVID hit, he called me and he said, I have a story I wanna tell you, uh, let's go to lunch. So we go to lunch and we're just kind of getting acquainted uh, again. And I said to him, you know, here, here you were in 1970, one of the hottest bands in the world at that time. And then suddenly you weren't. What happened? What the hell happened to Blood, Sweat and Tears? And that, of course, became the, the title of the film. And the story he told me, at least the broad outlines of the story, uh, uh, is, is what uh, you see in our film. What's interesting, though, is, uh, you know, when you're on tour with a band, you're, you're rehearsing and you're sleeping and you're doing some sightseeing. And, and it's not like all uh, nine Blood, Sweat and Tears guys were walking down the street at the same time. So what we get uh, with the band members was they each saw a little piece of the story and not the whole story. So it was really my job as a documentary filmmaker to put together what really happened behind the scenes. And that took a lot of work, not only interviewing the, the guys from the band, but also uh, unearthing a lot of uh, uh, State Department documents and, and other things that we can talk about. And it was through reading and, and talking and doing all of this that I was able to piece together what really happened back then. And, so and- you're talking about like the State Department and getting people's different stories. Um, for those who don't know, weren't there um you know those of us who were teen tiny babies at the time um um like what happened like what happened what's the whole what's the story 
behind the story and why is it a documentary within a documentary? Sure. Well, we'll 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 share a little bit with you, and then uh, for the rest, your your uh, listeners and viewers will uh, will have to watch the film. But um, Blood, Sweat, and Tears was riding quite high in in 1970, and they'd had five monster hits off of their second album, and a third album was coming, and they did a they became the first American rock band to tour behind what was then called the Iron Curtain which was this sort of mythical division between the free world in the West and the communist world in the East, uh, dominated by Russia. And so they became the first band to perform, uh, American band, to perform behind the Iron Curtain. They did concerts in Yugoslavia, in Romania, and Poland. And that tour was sponsored by the State Department. And the tour itself went pretty well. Uh, for the most part, there was a, a minor riot in Bucharest, Romania, which we can talk about. Um, but it's what happened to them when they came home. And these days, uh, don't need to tell anyone we're in a polarized country, uh, but America was pretty polarized in 1970 as well between right and left. And um, today, when you're criticized, uh, it's usually from the right or from the left. What made the situation unique for Blood, Sweat, and Tears is that they got hammered by both sides, the right and the left. And they never recovered from this. And, you know, bands have a moment where everything is going great. The reviews are great. The audience loves you. The records are selling. You're on TV. You're, you're, you're in concert, whatever it might be. And just the slightest thing can throw it off. But this was a big thing that that threw it off. And they really, as I say, never recovered from it. And what I've always looked at music as a uniter, and it's one of our themes here on this show, and just the things, not just mu music, but movies, anything that brings us together as a people. And music to me, though, it just, it, as we, it courses through my veins. And Blood, Sweat, and Tears were off doing something, that, whether voluntarily or involuntarily, you'll learn more in the movie, about how the involuntary part works. But as David Clayton Thomas, the, the, the most amazing pipes around, put it, we were just musicians, man. We just wanted to play for people. And like I said, they got pilloried by both sides. And you think, I can't think of any other time, whether it's now or then, like who else could, could polarize like that? Like I said, an already polarized division. And there's one getting it from both sides. Yeah, it was a very difficult situation uh, for them. And uh, a lot of different aspects to this story, which is what makes it so great. Um, I have done a lot of documentaries on musicians from John Lennon to John Coltrane and Harry Nilsson, Herb Alpert and Sergio Mendez and a number of others. Um, and uh, all of them unique in their own ways. Uh, and, and that very much goes to blood, sweat and tears. But um, I want to be very clear that this is not a history of blood, sweat, and tears. It really is a moment in time. And uh, Eric, as you said, it's it's a political thriller. And it's really about what happens with a, uh, to a group of young men, young musicians, who've never been outside of the country before, undertake this tour, and then find themselves wrapped up in this um, uh, international intrigue, uh, not of their own making, and how do they handle it? And what happens as a result of that? And then to me, that's a very 
um, cinematic, um, a wonderful story uh, to tell. Um, when I was growing up in the Midwest, one of the uh, my, my heroes of, of directors was Alfred Hitchcock. And what Hitchcock did so well in his films and what he did more often than not was to take an innocent person and throw him into a very uh, dramatic, suspenseful situation. And then they, they try to get out of it as best they can. And I liken that to what happened to Blood, Sweat and Tears. And, and uh, it's how do they respond to this and, 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 and how do they... Um, what was the impact on them as people and uh, as fans? And I thought what was the, it like uh, for you? Oh, go ahead, Jim. Sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. I thought the film did a really good job of setting up the historical context for uh, for everything, especially for younger viewers that maybe don't know the history as well, uh, for, for why the band was sent over. Uh, uh, can you talk a little bit about maybe just your opinion about why you think that that some of these countries, particularly uh, a country like Romania, was willing to allow a band like Blood, Sweat, and Tears to come into their country. What, what did they, what were they seeking to gain from that? It's a it's a great question. Um, back in the fifties, the State Department had uh, uh, started a bureau uh, whose job it was to send American uh, musicians, dancers, um, writers uh, to foreign countries. Um, to not only talk about their particular uh, uh, work, but also to uh, build a bridge to some of these countries uh, that America didn't have a very strong relationship with. So a lot of the communist countries um, uh, in Eastern Europe, um, um, uh, the, the three of them we discussed amongst them. Um, and, and it started off with jazz. So it was people like Louis Armstrong and, and Dizzy Gillespie who were really... Uh, very powerful jazz icons. But then um, as the world began to change in the 60s and as rock and roll took over and became the, the primary um, form of musical entertainment uh, for, for a whole generation, I think the State Department decided, all right, what we want to do is now send some ambassadors, if you will, of rock and roll over to these countries. Because um, uh, let's talk a little bit about Yugoslavia and, and Romania and Poland. Uh, uh, they, the, the media was very much censored there. They were not regularly exposed to uh, rock and roll or American music of any kind. Um, and so uh, when the State Department started to have conversations with representatives from those countries, what they were interested in over there was not only a cultural experience that would be different for, for their citizens, but they were also interested in American foreign aid. A lot of these countries um, were not doing so well economically, and they felt that by uh, extending a hand to America and building a relationship that they could get what was quite frequent then, uh, uh, foreign aid, where America would send uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars to other countries to help with their infrastructure or other things. So I think it was a very sort of selfish um, reason in that sense from for Romania and, and, and Poland and Yugoslavia was build a relationship with America and there will be some economic benefits from it. And what was it like for you, John, to shepherd the band? These not, you know, everyone who was involved with the making of this, what was it like shepherding them through their own history? Well, that's a really also an interesting question. Um, this is not something that, that, they forget. It has been with them uh, ever since. And what I saw was very different reactions. Um, 
a, a little bit of nostalgia, uh, a little bit of anger over what happened, a little bit of sadness over what happened, a little bit of bitterness over what happened. So it was really a, a complex set of, of responses to this. But I think being able to relive it with the interviews that I did with them, uh, it allowed them to really express themselves on this subject that was so important to them. And I think they all had something they wanted to say. And in their own, uh, with their own personalities, um, uh, they were able to say it in these interviews. And I think when, uh, when people see the film, they're gonna see a, a, a wide range of, of, of interesting personalities talking about this fascinating experience. Were there any uh, band members that sort of resisted or weren't, weren't really interested in being part of the project or were they all kind of all in on it? Well, there were nine members of the band at that time who, who went on the tour um, and uh, two had died and two felt that they didn't really have enough to say. Um, and so um, that's really what it was. They just didn't feel they could add much to it. Um, one of those members had actually been fired from the band uh, when they got home or some time after they got home and I think maybe didn't feel so comfortable talking about the band. And uh, the other guy, lovely guy, Chuck Winfield, who was the second trumpet player, uh, lovely, lovely guy. Um, he's become a Jehovah's Witness and um, it just sort of doesn't fit into um, his lifestyle to, to put himself out there publicly. Uh, so, but we got the other five, and uh, each uh, uh, strong personality in their own ways, and, and very opinionated in their own ways. So, I've noticed from uh, you know looking at the website, in each of your documentaries, you've had like some sort of unique speakers in the different um, documentaries that you've done. For example, Kermit the Frog talking about Bob Hope, or Robin <laughs> Williams talking about Harry Nilsson. You know. Who was the big get for this one? Can you say? Yeah, well, this one was a little different. Um, you know, it's uh, when I start a film, uh, I, I do take a look and say, all right, uh, I approach uh, who I'm going to interview very much as if I'm casting a film with actors. I want uh, unique voices with unique perspectives so that not everyone is saying the same thing in the same way. So... Uh, Best example, really, uh, thanks for the two that you mentioned. Uh, I would also mention, um, I did a film about Sergio Mendez, who is the guy that brought uh, Bossa Nova um, to, to, to the world. Uh, wonderful guy. And um, uh, I wanted Harrison Ford to be in this film. Why, you might ask? Well, that's exactly the question that his publicist <laughs> asked. I called up and explained who I was and what we were doing, and we wanted to interview Harrison for this film about Sergio. And with great attitude, this publicist said to me, well, why would he want to do that? He, he, he's notorious for not liking to do interviews in the first place, but this one was just, well, what's the connection here and why should he do it? And I said, just ask him. So a couple of days later, the publicist called back, very sheepish, and, and said, you know, we're all stunned here, but he wants to do it. <laughs> and so he came um, uh, the day we were going to shoot, and he came, no entourage, no assistant, drove himself, just came by himself and, and did the interview, and he was wonderful. And the reason he was in this film is that before he was Harrison Ford, he made his living as a carpenter. And, what, and his first really big job 
was building a home studio for Sergio. <laughs> and so I, I think he really loved doing this because it was a, a chance to talk about a time in his life uh, that most people don't ask about or don't know about. And he doesn't have to talk about Indiana Jones or Star Wars. And he just had a, a, a ball and, and we had a great time together doing it. And he's wonderful in the film. This one was a little different because again, it wasn't a history and it wasn't all these small uh, uh, incidents that will happen along uh, a career. This one was really at this moment in time and, and I didn't feel there was anybody really worthwhile that was so surprising here. Um, the one that, that um, I'm most proud that we did get was Tim Naftali, who's a, uh, a first-class historian. He's one of presidential historians for CNN. And head over to Hackett's to find out when, where, uh, at election time when, and, and where he's going to be in your town. About the Steve Hackett, thanks so much for joining us here on thanks All so Over the Place. Uh, Love you and all that sort of thing. And it turns out he was a big Bloodstreet fan. Knew their music very well. And uh, and was able to put, uh, Jim, as you were uh, kind to note, uh, he put in context what was going on in the world at that time, both East and West. But then he could also relate it to the band because he loved them and knew a bit about this story. And, uh, you know, of course, with the music in the movie, you had Bobby Columbia working on it, David Mann as well. And we got and, and BS&T performed it. So we've got new music from Blood, Sweat, and Tears. So I'll get thank you additionally for uh, letting us have some new music from them. Well, so let's talk a little bit about this. I have, uh, I have a couple of stories I can tell you here. So after I had this lunch with Bobby Columbi, or actually I should say during this lunch that I had with Bobby Columbi, um, right in the middle of it, just uh, he threw into conversation, you know, when we were there and this documentary film crew was with us, and I'm like, wait a second. You took a documentary film crew with you? He said, yeah, yeah, we were the first American rock band behind the Iron Crew. We took a documentary film crew with us. They shot everything with the idea of making a documentary for theaters at the time. And I said, there's film on this tour that you went on? Um, and then it really became a hunt for the film because uh, you can have a great story uh, uh, for a documentary, but if you don't have the audiovisual assets with which to tell that story, um, it's not going to happen. And so for the longest time, I was really concerned that I would not be able to tell this story properly because we could not find the film. What we learned is that the documentary film crew shot 65 hours of footage, concerts, behind the scenes, all that sort of thing. Um, and they came back to LA and they started to edit this, what would be a two hour documentary. And that never got finished. And then they made a one-hour version for television, mm -hmm. and that was never shown. And, and then the film disappeared. We suggest in, in the film what happened to it, um, but we checked every independent storage facility in L.A. Um, where a, a producer back then might have stored this film. And we couldn't find it. Nowhere, nothing, 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 nothing. We checked the Library of Congress. We checked the National Archive. We checked everywhere. So I was starting to get really depressed that I wasn't going to be able to make this film. And then one day I got a call from a woman who ran a vault here in L.A. who previously had said, I don't have anything. Well, it, it kind of st stuck in her craw that she, she couldn't come up with something here. So 
it was during COVID and she was stuck at home and she went through some loose leaf binders of material that had been in the archive back in the day and, uh, and came across a page with some vague reference to blood, sweat and tears. So the next time she went into the vault, she, she took a look and in a pile of stuff in a corner of the archive that was marked uh, for destruction, she found a print of the one hour TV version that was never shown. Why it was there, we don't know, but thank goodness it was. Um, uh, we got it and it's that footage that, that forms the foundation of our film because you get to see everything from start to finish uh, on the Blood, Sweat and Tears tour. But we also learned that they took a portable eight track uh, tape machine with them, not the eight track that people used to put in their cars, but it was a studio quality uh, a tape machine where you could record on eight tracks. And they recorded all of their concerts, again, for use in this documentary that never got finished. And I, where are these? Probably the same place the 65 hours were. Uh, didn't find them, didn't find them, didn't find them. So I was convinced I was going to have to use this, uh, not, not the best uh, mono sound that was in, in the 16 millimeter TV version that we did find. But then I had this wonderful uh, researcher named Kathleen Ermitage, and she's the nicest person you can imagine. And, uh, but she's also incredibly persistent. She will not take no for an answer. So she kept trying every place and everybody to try to find these audio tapes that were recorded during the tour. And she tracked down the family of the associate producer of this documentary that didn't happen. And unfortunately, he died in 2018. He would have known where the film was and he would have known where the sound was, but he had passed away. But when, when he did pass, his family donated the contents of his storage unit here in the San Fernando Valley in Los Angeles, uh, donated it to the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences Library. And it had been sitting there since he died. No one had done an inventory. Nobody knew what was there. And so Kathleen, uh, bless her, um, kept uh, trying to persuade this archivist there to go down and take a look, which he eventually did. And lo and behold, there were five of these eight track tapes there. We had three, four, seven, nine, and 18. So at one point there were 18 of these. Why he saved these five, I don't know. Where the others are, I don't know. But across all of these tapes uh, were every song but two that the band performed um, on this tour behind the Iron Curtain. And so this was like the best find for us. So uh, Bobby Columbi uh, and, uh, and a tremendous engineer named Alan Sides uh, and I went into Capitol Studios here in Hollywood. And uh, Bobby and Alan mixed these uh, original eight track tapes, which hadn't been played since they'd been recorded. And um, that became the soundtrack for the film. So when people come and watch what the hell happened to Blood, Sweat and Tears, the sound is just gonna blast out at you and sound as if it were recorded yesterday uh, as a result of these wonderful mixes that we did. And then Eric, back to your point, um, uh, in any film, um, you need to illustrate, or to, to, sorry, in any film, you need to bring to life certain sequences. And so you need uh, dramatic music. You need what we call underscore. 
uh, can be dramatic, poignant, funny, uh, whimsical, uh, thriller-like, whatever whatever the, the mood call, is called for in a particular scene. And so I needed somebody to do this music, and I didn't want to have just anybody. I wanted somebody that would understand the blood, sweat, and tears sound. So it took me about a month to persuade Bobby Columbi to do this. It was like, nah, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. And he tried to get out of this for about a month, and I wouldn't let him in my own nice John way. Uh, and he finally agreed to do it, and uh, he brought in his friend David Mann, and the two of them composed, uh, produced um, the underscore for the film. Uh, and we thought it would be really interesting if it would be performed by the current version of Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Uh, in fact, Blood, Sweat, and Tears has always been on the road right from the beginning. Uh, none of the original members are still in the band, uh, but they are out there performing at casinos and small performing arts centers. We got them all together here in L.A. and, and they got them in the studio and uh, they performed the score. So it's in the style of Blood, Sweat, and Tears, which to me as a filmmaker is great because there's a real continuity of sound here. Uh, so you get the old great hits and some of their album tracks, maybe not so well known, but but still terrific. And then you have uh, these new tracks done in the style of, uh, so it's really a treat for, for music fans and for, for Blood, Sweat and Tears fans. And, and this is not a knock on you. I'm just, it's only 20 minutes worth of score. I need more. What, what, what's, what's, what's happening? <laughs> you get a volume two? Days of Confused had more what, days What a full confused. soundtrack. We, we need like a score and a soundtrack. But look, folks, the, the titles on this, DCT Arrested, Bucharest Manifesto, Congressman Blowhard, Congressman Blowhard Speaks, Telegram. It, 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 it just it captures like the underscore, as, as, as it should in any movie, it just captures it so well. And the mood then, and it's in that BS&T sound and style. And, and I, I need some more vinyl up here, John. <laughs> but I, well, well, I will, I, will there be anything going on with because the like I said the performance they blast out at you and, and Christine will attest to you as we sat here and watched it. I was getting up and dancing. It's uh, <laughs> I love blood, sweat, and tears. And I, I did I'd forgotten how much I like blood, sweat, and tears till we were watching. But the performances, like I said, they're captured so perfectly on those eight tracks. Is anything gonna be done with those to uh to let people know just how badass this band was? Badass is a good word. They were just a terrific band, not only in the studio, but on stage. The only and band that could rival the, them at that time was Chicago with Terry Kath. After Terry Kath, different story, but that's a different that's a different show, folks. Different but story, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, badass. But Blood, Sweat, and Tears came before Chicago. They were that's the right. first to really um, uh, uh, blend jazz with rock. So they were really innovators in terms of that sound. So... Uh, uh, hopefully uh, people watching and listening here will, will go out and check it out. Uh, the soundtrack and the underscore are available in two different forms. The okay. soundtrack is available uh, digitally. You can, you can download or listen to it on any of your favorite music services. But there, we also have um, uh, hard copy CDs out there you can get from Amazon and uh, any other places. And uh, crank up CD the players broke. Any chance for vinyl? <laughs> there is a vinyl actually came out on record store day in November. Um, Boom, Christine, we're going to the store. How did tomorrow. we miss that? Seriously, how, <laughs> how did, did we miss that? How did we it's, miss uh, that? This minute here, uh, Angela, we, we had record store day author on our show, so it is Larry. Here we go. Oh, oh man, okay. You know what? 
It's uh, it was available from our it is available from our friends at Omnivore Records who put it oh, out. I, I'm familiar it's with a great piece of, It's great vinyl, so do check that out. The I, underscore. You had to me with it, so now I have to get it. Okay. <laughs> great. Um, the underscore is available uh, again on uh, uh, digitally. You can buy it from your favorite music services. Uh, it's only twenty minutes, and so, but it's not—it's fairly priced and all of that. So it's so good. Depending how deep you want to go here, it's all available uh, uh, for people. And for the movie has been showing—you know—starting last year, different different places throughout the country, festivals and everything. Then, from a streaming standpoint, that's coming out the end of this month, correct? Yes. So we'll talk a little bit about that. We, you know, I'm kind of old school here. There's to me, there's nothing like the movie theater experience. Yes. And I really. You know, not every documentary makes it into theaters. You have to be quite special. So happily, we were able to be in theaters. We be open in New York at the end of uh, March uh, in 2023, and we open in LA. Uh, and and then for the next three months, we were in theaters across the country, which was a wonderful experience. And I was able to go to some some uh, different cities uh, and then do Q and A's after, which was great fun. Um, but then we. We encountered uh, what what has affected the entire business here is that there's been a uh, everything's been turned upside down. Right. And, uh, a lot of the streamers are are trimming back on their staff. Uh, they are uh, not buying as many things and all of that. So we decided to wait for a while till the there was a little more stability in the business. And so uh, uh, what the hell happened to Blood Sweat and Tears is now coming out on February 27th. Mm -hmm. It'll be available for purchase or rent on uh, any of uh, your favorite uh, streaming platforms or online video on demand, all of that kind of thing. Cool. Plus, you can find through Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all this kind of uh, kind of stuff. Uh, and so, um, I, I really hope I'm so proud of this film, and it's so different. Um, so, uh, as we said at the beginning, I don't really think of it as a music doc. I think of it as a political thriller that happens Absolutely. to be about a band and has some great music in it. And I hope people will check this out. It's uh, uh, not only uh, in terms of, of uh, reflecting what happened back then, but there are also some tremendous parallels uh, between what was going on in the world at that time and what's going on in the world now. And I think that makes it a little more relevant and resonant for contemporary audiences. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You, yeah, you, you, Jim, go ahead, because you, you and I were talking about this a little bit. And you, you brought something yeah. up that I, I want you to bring up with John. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think I, I definitely seen the reaction that Blood, Sweat, and Tears received after they got back from their tour. My mind immediately went to to kind of the modern political climate where things are so divided, and we have things like cancel culture. Um, and you know, I don't know how, if you intended to make those parallels, but that's definitely where my mind went. Uh, and you know, just thinking about the, the climate of uh, political climate of then versus now. I mean, if, you know, if you had an artist now or, a, or, a, or a popular group that went to do a show in say North Korea and came back and had a different perspective on things. I mean, do you think they would have a receive a better or a worse reaction than blood, sweat and tears did today? Uh, well, I'll tell you, Jim, the, the first part of your question, uh, absolutely knew that cancel culture uh, was part of this story they were really canceled before we knew what that term was and, Absolutely. and what it really meant. So they were really one of the, not only an innovator in their sound, but an innovator in this experience. Uh, I would say another sort of close um, sibling to, to this would 
be what happened to the Dixie Chicks um, when when they got up and and uh, said what they said about President Bush and and the right wing came after them. Um, I I think we see cancel culture today in a much different way, not so much both right and left. I, I still think blood, sweat, and tears is entirely unique in this respect, um, but. Uh, I think you see cancel culture from the left and the right today, whether it's comedy, music, art, um, public figures, whatever it might be. Um, it's an unfortunate uh, aspect of our culture that is with us um, uh, to a great degree now. And actually, you see it with anybody who stands up and doesn't say the popular thing. And I don't want to get political about this, but much like uh, blood, sweat, and tears, and without giving too much of the movie away, but some of the guys didn't want to go over. They felt that, you know, they were anti-establishment, respect that, whatever, but you know, they went over, they did what they were want to do, whether what they want to or not, but came back with a new appreciation for America's freedom, which mm -hmm. you hear a lot about, you know, like what I know Johnny Cash went over, did his time in, in Germany, he's like, comes back, well, I, I know how good we got it here in America now. And those guys saw what communism was firsthand, and coming back here, and maybe not so much being critical of communism, but having a new appreciation of America got them pilloried by the left and, and their and the fellow hippies and everything. But then get it from the government who wasn't happy with everything that they, they weren't living up to or whatever. But you get that now, too. And it's just like yeah. I want to bring it back to music or entertainment can be the greatest uniter. And we, we've just balkanized ourselves so much now with, with identity, poli not identity politics, as politics, but just. I, identity or, or when, when what brings us together, not what divides us. So right. I, I love the parallels that you made with it. And what, it, it, it really came across well in the movie. And yeah. I, I have a new respect for blood, sweat and tears. And, and you know, just having an oppositional, how, how they were able to voice their opposition and then maybe taking a, a different look at it. I, I love how that came across in the movie. Well, again, we talked uh, earlier about um, uh, nine young men who had not been out of the country before. And uh, they were anti-war, they were anti-Nixon, and I don't think they really knew what to expect once they went over there. And, and the interesting thing today is you'll, you'll find um, people on the right uh, who, who praise Russia and praise Putin. And what these guys discovered is that it is no great joy to live in, uh, under a dictator and an authoritarian regime. This is not a great life. You can't pick your friends. You can't pick your media. You can't pick your television, your movies. Uh, you're under surveillance. There's, there's a whole lot of things going on that they experienced then. So when they came home, they were just being quite honest about it. That, uh, you know, uh, we, we think sometimes that there's a better system than ours, but I have to tell you there isn't. And we just experienced what was going on over there. And it did give them a greater appreciation for, for the freedoms that we have in this country. And, and uh, so I suspect, Jim, going back to your question, that um, if somebody did go to North Korea and came back, they might might encounter some of the same thing because we have we have our notions of what life is like and how we should be dealing with the North Koreans and all of that. And I just think that when you're an artist, you should be free to express yourself, whether it's music, whether it's painting, whether it's writing, no matter what it might be. These are ideas. And what are we so afraid of? If you're expressing your ideas, if you disagree, great. But what we see today as part of the cancel culture is censorship, where, well, you can't have that book in schools or you can't have that movie in your movie theater. or We want to get rid of that TV show, whatever it might be. 
I just think it's wrong. I think if uh, we are we are a great country, we have great freedoms here, and I think people are uh, fully capable of making their own decisions as to what they want to watch and what they want to listen to, and they don't need uh, people in Washington or, or or extremists on the right or the left uh, telling them what what they can experience. More freedom of speech, not less. You bet. You, you might learn something, or, or <laughs> something or two. Exactly, get exposed to something that you don't know about, like 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 Blood, Sweat, and Tears guys did. Now, did you get any uh, pushback from from the government as you were trying to make this? Were there any state secrets that they just didn't want to go? Because I know there were some things redacted on some of the verbiage that you saw. But did you? It seems like a movie that was well made uh, and balanced from both sides. But did you get any pushback from from the government? No, uh, actually, we didn't. Um, I think had, had had I made this back in the 70s, there might have been a little something something going on there from the government. But this is so long ago and there's nobody there any longer who had anything to do with it. In fact, most people don't know about this story. And that, again, is, I think, a reason why I hope people will check out the film on the video on demand and streaming is uh, it's such a unique story and people don't know this story. You can look it up online. You'll find a bit here, a bit there. But we tell the whole story in, 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 in great depth. Um, but the, the key for us also was finding these documents. Um, we checked with the National Archive, we checked with the Library of Congress, and they didn't really have anything about this. And again, I was quite depressed that I wasn't going to be able to tell the story properly. But then Kathleen discovered that uh, all of the documents from this Bureau of the State Department, the Cultural Presentations Program, uh, all of their files had been donated to the University of Arkansas back in in the 80s. And they were sitting there, most of them not, not read or seen uh, since. So we sent some researchers in to make copies and uh, scan everything. And it was from all of those documents, which were letters, internal uh, memos, uh, telexes and telegrams from people uh, uh, behind the Iron Curtain, uh, reporting back on what was happening on the ground. Uh, and uh, all of that enabled me to piece together most of uh, what happened there. The one exception is uh, uh, there's a gentleman we interviewed in the film named Don Camber. Uh, you won't know that name, but you should. He was a very famous editor. He did uh, the classic movie Five Easy Pieces. He did Romancing the Stone. He did one of the Ghostbusters movies. I mean, he's a really uh, very uh, uh, prolific editor. Uh, this was going to be his first directing job. So he was the one who took the documentary film crew and, and uh, got all the footage that, that he wanted to get and came back and started to edit it. Uh, I really wanted to interview him, but we couldn't find him. For the longest time, we couldn't find this guy. Anyway, finally we tracked him down. Uh, he was 90 years old and was in an independent slash assisted living facility in Burbank, California, but it was COVID. They wouldn't let him out and they wouldn't let us in. So I talked to him on the phone and it was just killing me because he had all these great stories of things that he saw uh, and experienced during this tour that I just had to have. So the first thing we did was we sort of like spycraft anyway, we smuggled a, a microphone in so we could do an interview uh, uh, over Zoom as, uh, as we're sort of talking now, uh, just as if something, he was 90 after all, so in case something happened, I wanted to at least 
have some of his stories down, which we did. But then about four or five months later, uh, we had a break in COVID where we could get in and out. So we got him out really fast and, and gave he gave us this wonderful interview that you guys saw uh, and, and that people who see the film will. Wonderful guy, 90 years old. Uh, the brain was as sharp as you could be. And I'll just give you one example. He had a story that only one of the nine band members knew, and that was that the Romanian government tried to confiscate the film from the documentary crew. And it had to be smuggled out of the country. And Don knew all the details. None of the band members knew it. One kind of knew a little something. But it was Don that, that told the story. And there, uh, he told me a number of stories like that that really made the film that much more complete. And the film would not have been as, as good without it. And I love the footage from him back in the day. I love the set of the interviews that he, he had. And Christine, I think that would maybe, to, to your question earlier, that might be the great get that John got for this one. There you go. Yeah. yeah. So, and, uh, and you, you brought up. Uh, I, think this what I, I think what I would say, sorry to interrupt, Eric. What oh, I no, would no, say, too, the other thing that makes his interview so good is that it's 50 years ago, but you can still see and feel the pain that he experienced by this film not coming out. Uh, it still has stayed with him ever since. And again, this was a, a way for him to express himself about that. And, and to tell us how he felt. And, you know, it's interesting. Um, I think one of the things that separates my films from other uh, documentary filmmakers is I'm not so much about this ha the facts. This happened, this happened, this happened, and mm -hmm. this happened. I mean, you, you do get that. But I'm also uh, interested in, and sometimes more interested in, well, how did what happened make you feel? And out of that, you get... Uh, an, an amazing array of answers from people. And that's where the emotion comes from. And I think what you'll find with most of my films is that they're quite emotional in their own way. And this one very much so uh, from the guys who looking back at this experience and telling us how they felt about it, but especially Don um, who, who spent so much time and energy on this film it was going to be his first film he directed and it, it didn't happen, and and he's still very sad and, and angry about it. Well, you mentioned the guys didn't know about it. In watching the movie after its you know its release, what were uh, some of the things that you know, like, wow, cool? You know, what what kind of excitement did you get from the members of the band as they watched the movie and the final product? Um, absolutely thrilled. Again, most of them didn't know the whole story, uh, so that was fascinating for them. Um, in addition to the film, which most of them had never seen, um, we also had hundreds of photos, mm. uh, some of which they had never seen. And so I think it was uh, an experience of discovery for them. But also, I think because we were, the way we present the story, it's kind of bringing them back into focus, if you will, bringing them back uh, and giving them some attention that they haven't had for a very long time. So they were quite, quite thrilled. Uh, Steve Katz, the, uh, the guitar player for the band, mm -hmm. uh, he will sometimes go do a, a date where he's uh, performing some songs on his own and I, um, they, they will coordinate a screening of the film and he'll do a Q&A. Um, and uh, Bobby Columbi, uh, just big, big supporter and, and fan of the film, he and I did a lot of Q&As together uh, over the last year. And um, 
but he's just thrilled. And you know, this is one of the interesting things too that happens when you make a film is sometimes you will meet and really bond with somebody. So I didn't really know Bobby well, um, but we're like brothers now. We just, we talk all the time and go out, go out to eat and, uh, uh, and uh, catch up on, on our lives. And so I think we're going to be in each other's lives uh, for, uh, you know, for the rest of ours. Very cool. Very cool. And again, folks, see this movie coming out, uh, you know, uh, next week, uh, the 20, uh, 27th streaming. And you, you mentioned earlier and also well, uh, you've got a good narrative feel for films. You know, how, how does it make you feel? And you, you go through and you're kind of casting things. If you were to make this into a narrative film, I mean, actually, is there a possibility of making making a narrative film out of this? I hope so. I hope uh, somebody interested in that will be watching and listening to this and will give me a call and say, let's do that. I personally think it's it's such a great story with so many twists and turns that um, are, are really reminiscent of the best of, of spy fiction. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, that I think you could make a great uh, film out of this and then have some some great music. So it's something I've certainly thought about. There's nothing in the works at the moment, but I think you absolutely could. If well, I can go if you back, ever do, I've got, I've got a guy, an actor in Milwaukee area who would be absolutely perfect for David Clayton Thomas. He's been a singer his whole life. AJ Laird, I'm shouting it out for you, buddy. A former guest on the show, a longtime friend, friend of mine. AJ Laird as David Clayton Thomas. I'm putting it on paper right now. That's where you should start. At least give him an audition. <laughs> he's That's got a real, he's got some stuff going on right now. So let me, uh, I, I forgot to mention one other thing though, when we were talking about uh, response to the film, um, Don Camburn never saw it. He passed away before mm -hmm. we were finished. That, um, that, that, that hit me too. As we were watching, I'm like, Oh, we had tried to get him to come and see a, a rough cut in the editing room, but he was experiencing some real health issues and mm -hmm. wasn't able to, and then he passed away. Uh, uh, but uh, his 88-year-old uh, uh, girlfriend uh, came to one of our uh, shows in a theater here in L.A., and she was just thrilled and and uh, teary-eyed and all of this at being able to see him and, and the fact that he, he wasn't able to see it for himself. And so... That, that killer hair yeah. and mustache he had back in the day. Yeah, I, I, and he... You put Matthew McConaughey as him. I could see that happening. <laughs> absolutely. You absolutely could. <laughs> All lanky and handsome. I'm asking for no credit on the casting on this. I'm, I, I'm removed from my L.A. days. I'm just throwing some guesses out We just want to see it happen. Yeah, it's be a great movie. And I, I do want to ask, I mean, I know uh, streaming, it's been it had some theatrical. Jim and I are, are still physical media collectors, but much to the chagrin of some people in this house who will go unnamed. But... Uh, <laughs> I would love to see the hour-long documentary that's chopped down from the two-hour documentary. Is there are there any plans for like a Blu-ray or a DVD that could have some bonus material on it? Not uh, at this point for that. There is a DVD of the film that will be available starting February 27th as well. Okay. So what the hell happened to Blood, Sweat, and Tears? You can buy on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, any place where you would go to buy books or videos or DVDs mm -hmm. or Blu-rays. Not a Blu-ray at first. If there's enough interest from people then we're going to put out a Blu-ray, but uh, for the moment, it's just DVD, uh, no bonus material. I think if we do a Blu-ray, we'll have uh, some some other things and possibly the the original, um, but we'll see. Well, folks, definitely check this out. What what the hell happened to Blood, Sweat, and Tears? John Scheinfeld, amazing documentary filmmaker, and, and this is more than a documentary. It's an espionage thriller. Amazing. And John, thank you so much for making the movie. 
Uh, well, thank you so much. As I say, I'm very proud of it. I hope a lot of people go see it. And uh, uh, thanks for uh, having me. Very welcome. And soon up uh, up there with those those other vinyls, the soundtrack coming up. <laughs> I have a Fantastic. feeling we're going to the record store tomorrow. <laughs> I don't know. You know I, I think uh, Z is open till ten. I'll, I'll be I'll be back soon. Okay. I gotta, I'll get the dog food and, and blood, sweat, and tears while I'm out. So, so again, John, thank you for being here with us on all over the place. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Nice to see y'all. Thank you. Right. Thanks, John. Thanks a lot. All right, folks, this has been All Over the Place, and we will be back with you real soon. Thanks again, John. Thank you. You've been listening to All Over the Place, the official podcast of Media Pub Live. If you like what you've been listening to, and you know that you have, be sure to subscribe, like, and share at YouTube, Spotify, or your preferred platform. We thank you for your support. The opinions expressed by the guests are theirs and do not necessarily reflect those of the host or the producer.